You can go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 10. This thing around here. Matthew chapter 10. I don't know if many of you know the scene, but it was on March 4th, 1836. And uh, there was a standoff between the 5,500 men of the strong Mexican army commanded by Santa Ana and a group of about 183 ragtag volunteers. And they were holed up inside the uh, mission in, in uh, San Antonio. And uh, a lot of us know some of the men who were there, have heard their names. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Bowie. Uh, a knife is always loaded was his <laughs> slogan. Uh, William B. Travis, a former U.S. Uh, and also a, a former U.S. House of Representative Davy Crockett from Tennessee. Uh, these three representatives of these valiant 183 men who gave their lives in battle. And uh, you know the cause. Texas wanted to uh, be independent from Mexico. And these volunteers gave their lives uh, for something uh, obviously bigger than themselves. And all the United States was behind the effort. And there were men uh, fighting at the Alamo from New York, from Pennsylvania, from Tennessee, from Kentucky. Uh, even other countries had representatives too. Germany, England, Ireland, just to name a few. And uh, this small little fort, as history tells us, was this microcosm of the human spirit that refused to be oppressed and refused to bow to something less than the ideal. And you know the immediate consequence of that battle. Not one man inside the Alamo survived. All 183 were slaughtered. But all of them showed what they were made of. Eight Mexicans died at the Alamo for every one Texan. Obviously, it was a great personal loss for them. But that personal loss for them had long-reaching results and rewards for others. The slaughter at the Alamo ushered in the declaration from Texas to Mexico claiming independence and established Sam Houston as the commander-in-chief. The death of those valiant men wasn't just all for naught. It incited the United States as well as Texas, since many who died there were American military men. And after the slaughter at the Alamo, volunteers came from everywhere, and the fight that would come weeks later was swift and certain. In less than 18 minutes, the mighty Santa Ana's Mexican army was obliterated at the Battle of San Jacinto. The blood of the Alamo martyrs proved to be Seeds of victory. And you hear the chant, remember the Alamo. That was their battle cry. Um, and there's a striking resemblance between the valor and virtue of those men at the Alamo and those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at Matthew chapter 10, both groups, those fighting at the Alamo and those who are fighting the cause of Christ today, even in the world and, and even in, in Jesus' time, recognize that life does not find its meaning through ease and through comfort, but through loyalty, obedience, commitment, and sacrifice. And that's what we need to understand is our call when we come to Christ. We're called to be loyal. We're called to be obedient. We're called to 
commit ourselves to the cause, and we're also called to be willing to sacrifice. And remember, in Matthew 10, as we're beginning this, or kind of looking at this passage here in Matthew 10, 16 to 23, the Lord is basically sending out his army, his original apostles, the original missionaries. He's sending them into a hostile world. And he's seen the harvest, he's seen the hurting people, and he told them earlier to pray that the Lord would send forth workers into the harvest, and they're the answer to their own prayers. And the breakdown of the chapter, basically, in verses 1 through 5, we got to know them a little bit, and then 5 through 15, he gave them their instructions for ministry. And then in verses 16 to 23, he tells them how to react when the world's going to reject them, because the world is going to reject them. And then in verses 16 to the end, he kind of, uh, uh, or uh, 24 to the end, he tells them a little more about what it means and what's, what's going to be their response and, and uh, uh, all that. He sent them out equipped. He sent them out with divine power, just like he sends us out with divine power. But he wanted them to know, without a shadow of a doubt, when you go out there, you're going to have problems. There's going to be issues that come up. People are going to reject you. And that's basically where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. So let me read for you once again, verses 16 to 23, and we'll finish this up today. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you are to speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now remember, this passage is dealing with thousands of years of time. It's not just applicable to when Jesus said this to them there in their midst. It telescopes out even into the midst of the, the tribulation and after when the Son of Man comes, he ends in verse 23. And that's how Scripture is sometimes. You could have one verse that spans thousands of years. And so you have to understand that going into this or you're going to be confused because as we talked about last week on their first missionary journey, when they went out, when Jesus sent them out this time, they didn't go out and raise the dead and do all the things that he told them they would do before. And so critics look at that and say, well, see, they didn't even do it. So Jesus was a liar. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about this time they went out. He was talking about the next time he'll send them out by themselves after Pentecost when they have the Spirit and they're sent out into the world. That is when they received all that persecution, when Christ was off the scene. But while Christ was on the scene, he bore the brunt of the physical persecution and the, the spiritual attacks and everything. And so as we look at this passage, we looked at a couple questions. First of all, who are the wolves? Who are these wolves? And we concluded last week in verses 17 and 22, it says, Beware of men, you shall be hated by all men. The wolves are men and women, people of the world, just like you and I, 
who are being played as dupes of Satan himself. Obviously, we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies, principalities and powers, rulers of darkness. It's true that we wrestle against demonic enemies and forces and all that spiritual world out there. But we also wrestle against those who are empowered by the evil spiritual world, um, wolves or men. And they're waiting to devour us, the Bible says. They're not just going to sit by on the sidelines and let you minister for Christ. So who are the wolves? The wolves are men who are empowered and um, just, you know, behind the, the forces of Satan himself. Secondly, why were they so vicious? And we talked a little bit about this last week in verses 18 and 22. He says, you're, you're going to be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake. You'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. And, and we concluded that the viciousness wasn't against the disciples so much as it was against Christ. Because they were representing Christ. So, why were they so vicious against the disciples? It's because they hated Christ. It says, for my namesake, Jesus said. So the next time you're out witnessing, the next time you're out sharing your faith, and someone rejects you, just remember, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting the message that you're bringing. They're rejecting Christ himself through you because you're a Christian, you're representing Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's what, that's what a Christ follower is supposed to do, represent Christ to a lost and dying world. The problem with the church, unfortunately, <laughs> is that we don't do that <laughs> very well. We don't go out into a lost and dying world and represent Christ the way he should be represented. We're kind of timid. We're kind of sickly. We got issues. And so when they look at a Christian, they go, Well, you got the same issues I got. Why would I want to follow Christ? And so there's that 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 problem there. Why are they so vicious? Not because they hate you. Don't take it personally. Have you ever watched uh, Way of the Master on TV and you see Kirk Cameron or Ray Comfort and you know uh, those guys down in Santa Monica Pier or whatever sharing their faith and people just just attack them. But they don't take it personally. And they have a good demeanor with them. They kind of joke around. I'm thinking, man, you know, sometimes you wonder if somebody's not just going to haul off and smack those guys. You know, because they're, I mean, they're talking to gang. They're talking to all kinds of people. But it's not because they hate those people. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Ray Comfort, but he probably stands about this tall. He's not a threat to anybody. Sometimes he's talking to guys that are like this and, you know, breaking out of their muscle shirts. And he's telling them that they're on their way to hell and they need Christ. <laughs> well, it's not the representative that they're necessarily upset with. It's Christ. It's the message of Christianity. And so you're going to get that. You're going to get that viciousness. Well, today I want to look at a third question in this text. How do these wolves attack? If Jesus is saying, I'm going to throw you out into the midst of these wolves and they're going to be vicious and they're going to attack you. We should, as Christians, understand how these wolves are going to attack us. So that we can beware, right? That we can be on our guard about this. Well, verse 17, look at what it says there. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you. In other words, that is, they will beat you with whips. Now, this didn't happen, once again, on this missionary journey. It happened later in the disciples' lives. But it was still something that was going to happen. But most often they would 
beat them with rods strapped together. And they'd be kind of cane or, or uh, you know, bamboo rods, and they'd strap them together. And you can only imagine what that would feel like as that came down upon your flesh. But the key there, it says, in their synagogues. The first way that these wolves are going to attack, believe it or not, is through religion. It's through religion. You know, somebody always... You know, when you're talking to people and they find out what you do or you you're, you go to church or whatever, they always say, oh, you're religious. And I'm always so quick to say, I am not religious. I don't want to be religious. Religious to me is a negative thing. Religious, being religious, a religion is something man creates to try to reach a holy God. That's how I look at religion. Because you've got all kinds of religion. And I don't think Christianity is a religion. I mean, it is in the technical sense, but I'm saying as far as my definition goes, you know, I'm I'm saying Christianity is a relationship with the living God. It's so much more than just an empty religion. And people don't always understand that. But you know that because of your faith, you're going to be attacked through religious people. says they're in their synagogues. Synagogue is the key word there in verse 17. It establishes that religious context. Jewish people had synagogues, meeting places. They had them in every town. Wherever there was ten people, they would have a synagogue. And in the synagogues, they would carry out their particular religious beliefs and they'd enforce what their beliefs were and, and all kinds of things. And so if someone violated what they believed to be wrong or one of their oral traditions or their law of Moses in some way or whatever, he would be brought to the local synagogue. And he'd be placed before a tribunal of 23 judges in the synagogue. And they would render a verdict. They would hear the charges and they would render a verdict. And they would be followed by a sentencing. All right there in front of the people. You think church discipline can be dicey. Think of that. And frequently, the scourging, the sentence was a scourging, or the, 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 the sentencing was a uh, smashing with the band of sticks on the back. Old Testament law required that no more than 40 such stripes would be given to each victim, according to Deuteronomy 25.3. And so they never gave more than 39. That's why you always hear, oh, 39, last 39, all this stuff. About 39. That's why, because they didn't want to they want to make sure they're within the letter of the law. They don't want to go to 40 because you can't give more than 40. If the guy got carried away at 40, then you know you might not be able to stop before he strikes again at 41. But if he gets carried away at 39, you can maybe reach out and say, hey, no, we only we only stop at 39. Very emotional thing when this was being done. One judge would call out the sentence, another judge would call out the number of blows given to the victim. And they would say, one, boom. Two, boom. In between each one, someone would be reading scripture or someone would be reciting some form of, of, of their traditional, uh, you know, law. And it was a very involved thing. Sometimes they'd even sing songs while these people are being beaten right in front of the whole synagogue. Well, our Lord told the disciples to expect to be delivered up to councils, to the local courts, in the synagogues, because that's where the religious law was carried out. The supreme court of the land was the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So he told them to be, you know, you're going to be scourged for your faith. It's going to happen in the synagogues. 
And you can look through the book of Acts. In Acts 5.40, they were, they were scourged in the synagogues. Acts 22.19 tells us the Apostle Paul, before his, congreg- before his conversion, went from uh, congregation to congregation, rounding up Christians and taking them to the, the synagogues and having them scourged. 2 Corinthians 11.24 says that Paul himself was scourged five times because of his faith. And all those times it probably happened in the synagogue. I mean, if you stop and think about it, the very people that sentenced Christ to death were the religionists of his day. It was the men of religion who wanted to get rid of him. It was the the chief priests, you remember? The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. They wanted him dead because he was kind of competing. He was edging in on their territory. And so Jewish persecution of Christians continued during Jesus' time until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which is kind of interesting. But after that, there's really no record of Jewish persecution of Christians, even up to the present day. Now, you know, now and then, you know, someone in a Jewish family will come to faith and they're persecuted somehow. But I mean, I mean kind of a mass persecution of Christians like there was back in Jesus' day. That just doesn't happen today. But over in Israel, they're, they're trying to kind of tighten down on certain things where, you know, you're, you're very... Um, when Ephraim Goldstein was here, we were talking a little bit about, you know, how do you share your faith over there? Is it against the law? No, it's not. And, and you know, and they want, it, they want you to think it is, but it's not. You can go out and, and pretty much do whatever you want. And they always say, well, if you're apostolizing, you're bringing people, well, you're not allowed to do that or whatever, and they'll crack down on that. But really, he said they don't have a hope when it, actually if it would go to court. They just intimidate And so the Lord here in Matthew 10 says, expect persecution from religious sources. In his day, the Jewish people were the main example of that. But even in the time of the Apostle Paul, the Romans persecuted Christians because basically they worshipped idols, they worshipped the emperor, whoever it may be. Pagan religions persecuted Christians because you know Christ said, no, you only worship Christ, that's it. So if you didn't do that, you're worshiping something else. Well, you know, you had a problem with with the Christian's message. And all over the world today, even, beloved, there's many pagan religions who are demonically empowered. And, you know, you see here about some of these tribes over in Africa or even some of the, the situations in India and things where they'll go in and they'll just slaughter Christians, just wipe them out. That's a demonic force. Even though men are carrying out that... That, that horrible crime, it's, there's a demonic force be, behind that. And I think we, we don't have to look too far around us to realize that one day, that kind of thing is going to end up coming here to America. We're going to be forbid to preach in Christ's name. We're going to be forbid to share the gospel. I mean, there, there, there's laws that they're trying to put on the books now that are limiting people's speech. To say homosexuality is a sin would be wrong politically. You could potentially wind up in jail for a hate crime. I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's where it's going. False people would be happy to kill true believers. 
That's just the way it always is. In Acts 20, 29, Paul said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. See, things have been done even in the name of Christianity, even against true Christians, as well as in the name of, of Judaism and other pagan religions. But religion basically is a persecutor. It's a persecutor. And it will end that way too in Revelation 17. It talks about the mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth, all that kind of stuff happening. And you you begin to to realize that in the end it's not going to be any different. There's still going to be a religion. It's going to be a godless religion, but it's going to be a religion. And it's going to deceive many people. And so in Matthew 7, 14, the Lord warned those who come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they're coming in the name of religion. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, Paul tells us, that Satan describes himself as what? Angel of light. Satan's not a little guy in a red suit that runs around with a pitchfork and a tail and horns on his head. That's what he would want you to believe. No, he's an angel of light. See, that's why it's so hard sometimes to... To discern, hey, am I doing the right thing or not? Because Satan's always trying to fool you. He's always trying to do the bait and switch. He's always playing the shell game with you. I mean, I've even had Christians come to me and, and ask me, well, no, can you, can you tell me a verse where it says specifically that I cannot do this, whatever it may be, whatever little pet sin they have? Can you point to me to a verse where it says that I shouldn't do this? You mean exactly like what you're... Yeah, yeah, one that's... Because if it doesn't say that, then I guess, you know, God didn't, you know, mention it, so it's probably okay. No, it's not right. We should always seek to do everything to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second source of attack. Not only religion, but verse 18 says, this attack's going to come from government. Government is going to persecute us as well. It says, you shall be brought before governors. Literally, people like Pilate and Felix and Festus in those days... It would also refer to kind of a lesser king or a government official. He says kings, monarchs, such as Agrippa, Herod, others. He says, for my name's sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Where it says they're a testimony against them, it's a little hard, a little dicey to understand exactly what he wants us to understand by that. Some think that in persecution you stand as a living rebuke, as a testimony against those who persecute you. Others think that you're actually going to be brought in before these councils as they're persecuting you, and you're going to be told to give your testimony, to proclaim truth. Whichever one it is, you're going to be persecuted as a result. But see, that's government. That's not religion. It's the state who will persecute us in those situations. I mean, there's, there's people now that, I mean, you might say it's not persecution, but there's people now that are very upset that, that religious establishments have nonprofit status. And they want to take that away. Well, that's a form of persecution. It could be interpreted that way. But I think it's going to be much greater than that as the time draws closer for Christ to return. I think there'll come a day in America where we'll be forbid to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll be forbid to speak out against immorality. We'll be forbid to speak out the truth of God. 
We can't understand that right now because we have so much freedom. But you go to some other countries who don't have that freedom and they'll tell you, oh yeah, it could happen overnight. So that's, that's government. It will, it will persecute you. In their day, the, the Roman government persecuted uh, Christians greatly. They were threatened by Christianity. And so they made up charges against Christians. They accused them of cannibalism, and they accused them of distor- you know, all sorts of crazy things. And when they did that, I mean, as a result, Christians were blamed for the burning of Rome in, in AD 64, if you remember that, in history. Hopefully you don't remember it firsthand. You'd be pretty old. But they're, they're always accusing Christians of all sorts of things. And many were, 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 were slaughtered as a result. Today in countries, people, because of their Christian faith, are persecuted or even killed in the name of government. I mean, it doesn't happen here in America yet, but it's happened. In the tribulation, the government of the Antichrist will persecute whatever Christians are around. In Revelation thirteen seven, it says, It was given unto him uh, uh, power to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. In verse 10 of that same chapter, it says that he will kill them with the sword. I mean, I, I thank God that I'm a, you know... Uh, a pre-trib, I believe we're going to be taken out of here before the tribulation comes as believers. But there will be those who will be persecuted during that time. Um, and that's going to come from government sources. I mean, when our president is quoted as saying, we were... We are no longer a Christian nation. I mean, you wonder where that's going. He's trying to reach out to everybody else on the the religious map. It's become diluted in in our country. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that our country was founded with Christian Judeo principles. I mean, it was founded literally as a Christian nation. But government will be persecuting us because of our faith. Thirdly, persecution in verse 21, Jesus says, you know what? It's going to come from family. Some of you have maybe tasted that a little bit. Tasted some of the persecution because of your faith from your own family. I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, and and it was a couple weeks after I came to Christ that this little church, country church in Pennsylvania, was having a uh, baptism in uh, the Loyal Sock Creek. It was after church, and uh, the pastor was saying you should get baptized. It's the first act of obedience after someone comes to faith. That's what Jesus instructed us to do. It has nothing to do with their salvation, but it's if you want to be obedient to Christ, you'll get baptized. And so I wanted to get baptized. And so I, I said, okay, fine, when's it happening? It's happening Sunday after church. We're going to meet out behind Farmer Joe's farm out there by Lowestock Creek. I'm like, okay, fine. And I didn't give it to, you know, think too much about it. But I remember walking out there, and there's still some snow on the ground. <sighs> I mean, this was crazy when I think about it. You know, it was, it was the beginning of April. 
And I'm just going, what am I doing, you know? But my nephew was with me, and he had recently made a profession of Christ, and he said, can I get baptized? And I said, well, sure, I guess, ask the guy. So, yeah, do you know Christ? Yeah, I went through the whole thing. Sure, you can get baptized too. I never thought of asking my brother, who's a devout Catholic at the time, What's the big deal? I mean, I'm just following Christ. So we get baptized. We go home after church. And tell, let me tell you, man, it was cold. You guys don't know how good you have it. I mean, I just, whoo. You weren't saved before you went in that water. You were definitely saved when you came out because it was just like, whoa. But I remember taking my nephew home. And, uh, you know, I mean, our hair was kind of wet and stuff like that. And my brother's going, where were you guys at? I said, oh, we went to church. And, hey, we got baptized. Well, the wheels fell off the cart. I mean, he lost it. What do you mean he got baptized? What church? So I told him, and he just went nuts. Especially when he found out his own son got baptized without me asking him permission. And there began, I mean, you know, we're still brothers, and we still loved each other, but a form of not, not any serious persecution. But you know what? Our relationship was never really the same. <laughs> what well, says there, the brother shall deliver a brother to death, and the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That's why in verse 36 it says, A man's foes will be those of his own household. And if you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. In other words, it's going to come down real close. Not just religion, not just government, but family. It's going to break family ties. Your faith in Christ. I mean, there's been families when someone comes to faith in Christ because of their own religious upbringing, and this person steps out and follows Christ and maybe goes to a different church or whatever, they literally have a funeral upon hearing of their faith in Christ. And they just totally write that person off. That's hard for us to comprehend, but it happens. I mean, only God knows how many people have been persecuted, betrayed, or killed by members of their own family because of their faith in Christ. God knows how many parents or children have turned in their own families in some of these these God-forsaken countries, especially back in the 2nd and 3rd century Rome. God knows how many people in other countries throughout the history of the world have revealed to authorities that one of their family members became a believing Christian. And the government swooped in and took them out and persecuted them somehow. And the Lord says here, you know what? Expect it. If you're looking within your family for peace and joy and solace, you, you might realize real quick that they could possibly become your worst enemy just because of your stand for Christ. In Matthew 10 there, verses 34 to 37, look at what he says. He says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. To set a man at odds or at variance against his father. A man's foes, a foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loves daughter or son more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, families will become persecutors of their own. And that may hurt the deepest. I mean, you think of the time of the tribulation where, I mean, if you're a follower of Christ, I mean, you're in for a world of hurt. 
And you can imagine, you know, a family without the ability to buy and sell, maybe because of their faith, and they won't take the mark or whatever, and the other family member's getting upset, and them taking the mark, and, hey, turn this guy in. I mean, you can just see it happening. And that's the way it happened all over the world. In Mark chapter 13, verses 12 to 14, Jesus repeated the same teaching here, basically, in the context of the tribulation. He says, Brother shall betray brother to death, and father his son. And children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated for my name's sake by all men. He shall endure to the end. He shall be saved. When you'll see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That last statement there places the context basically in the middle of the tribulation period. So the Lord is saying that basically this is going to be the case throughout history. Not just for you guys. When you guys go out, the world's going to hate you and stuff. But you know what? When the church age comes, if you live for Christ, you're going to be persecuted somehow. But even in the tribulation, if you follow Christ, you're still going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted by religion. You're going to be persecuted by government. You're going to also be persecuted even by your own family. And you say, well, how widespread is this persecution? Verse 22, it says, you're going to be hated by all men for my name's sake. The whole of society will be against you. I mean, talk about isolation. And that's going to be the norm. Now, it's interesting to me that Today, we live in a day where, you know, if we say something at the water cooler, you know, and the, uh, disrupt the office a little bit, you know, we go home with our head between our legs going, oh, man, I was persecuted today, you know, gee, you know, because I said, oh, I don't go to movies or something. I mean, you know, that, that's how, that's where our idea of persecution is. The idea that we would actually go up to someone in our job or at our our place of employment or even at a supermarket or whatever and say, do you understand that without Christ, you will go to hell and burn forever? I mean, that would just be like, well, you can't do that. (laughs) People think you're wacky, but that's the truth. So we take it to the far extreme and we try to, you know, share our faith. (laughs) And I think when we try to share our faith... People are going to hell by the dozens because we're not being bold for Christ the way he wants us to be. You're going to be persecuted anyway. Why not give them a reason to persecute you? That's the way I look at it. Well, one last question, and this question has a couple different answers here, but what are we supposed to do in response to this persecution when it happens? We know the wolves are men. We know that they're vicious because not they necessarily hate us, but they hate Christ. And they're going to attack us through religion. They're going to attack us through government. They're going to attack us through family. They're even going to attack us through the whole of society if we stand up for Christ and live a life that's honoring to him. Well, what is the response of the sheep? What are we supposed to do when we're faced with those kind of circumstances? Well, verse 16 says, first of all, be wise as serpents. First of all, be wise. Understand, have some wisdom about you when you're put in a persecuting situation. You have to understand, in the Egyptian world, over there, the symbol of the snake is a symbol for wisdom. I mean, over here we see a snake, we're like, oh, the devil or whatever. But it's a sign of wisdom. And so when he says wise as serpents, okay, he's he's saying basically, be shrewd, be cunning. Be smart. Be key-minded. 
uh, keen-minded, be prudent, cautious. Use your skills to avoid danger. Be wise, he says. In Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are outside. In other words, Christians are to be wise in dealing with the wolves of this world around them. So that we have a a good testimony before Christ. I mean, to put it another way, say precisely the right thing at the right time in the right place. Don't give people the opportunity to point their finger at you and say, you know what, you're just some whacked out religion crazy man. Use some wisdom when you're witnessing, when you're talking to people about Christ. Don't just go off in your own you know, fleshly power and, yeah, I've got my 20-pound Bible here and I'm going to cram it down everybody's throat that I see. Well, that's not going to win people for Christ. That's going to turn people off. You have to be wise about how you go about sharing your faith. I listened to a guy the other night. Uh, he has a website. I can't think of his name. He has a website called Think It Through. And he had a program on last night. And he was asking people on the street, do you think that Christianity is Jewish? <laughs> and in our mind, we look at that and we go, what do you mean? And, and he, he got these answers from these people. And some people would say, no, but it came out of Judaism, whatever. And, and he began to relate how, how Judaism, okay, Christianity very much has its roots, even modern-day Christianity, in Judaism. I mean, everything about it is Jewish. It was just amazing to me when I, when I began to understand what he was saying. And, and he's an example of somebody who goes out and he says the right thing at the right time in the right place in the right way. And people listen. See, as we confront the hostile world, those who are against Christ, we have to be wise about it. So many times we're not wise and we come back licking our wounds, thinking, oh, I was persecuted. Well, you know, maybe you were persecuted just because you went out and acted stupid. (laughs) I mean, you know, some of these people, you you see them out there with big billboards and all sorts of crazy things, you know, and they're they're picketing, um, you know. I mean, they'll picket anything, anything that, anything. I mean, I've seen people picketing MacArthur's events. I've seen people picketing Greg Laurie's events, Billy Graham's events, uh, Jeremiah's events. I mean, all the Bible teachers that you know and love, I mean, there's people that actually stand outside these people's things and, and picket them thinking they're not doing the truth. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's just really ridiculous. That's not wise. So he says we have to be wise. Don't make trouble. Don't wreak havoc. Um, You know, some people, they become Christians and immediately they get fired from their jobs. Why? Because they're supposed to be working, but they're over in the corner reading their Bible. Or they're supposed to be talking to customers, but instead of trying to sell something, they're talking about Christ. That's not wise. Nor is it right. When you go to work, you should do what your employer expects you to do. If you can't do that, then go get another job. But because you get fired, because maybe you're, 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 you're just taking time away from what he's employed you to do to share your faith, that's not persecution. In my mind, that's stupidity. So you have to be wise. Be careful. Secondly, it says, be harmless as doves. 
be harmless as doves. Notice it doesn't say be harmless as blackbirds or crows. You know, I, I just don't care for these things we have around here, these big black birds, you know. I mean, sometimes, no lie, I'm, I'm coming over to the, 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 uh, uh, the, the worship center in the morning sometimes, and there'll be like a line of crows on the roof of this building. And I've trained them. They know that I'm coming. And I look up at them, and they look down at me. And no lie, all I have to do is go like this. I don't even pick anything up and go like that. And they all, they go off. Because a couple times I did pick up some rocks and threw them. I don't know if it's the same crows or what. I, but seriously. And sometimes I'll get one that's stubborn and he'll just hang out. You know, and, I'll be, and I'm thinking, I wonder if this neighbor can see me. Like, what's this crazy pastor doing over there, you know? But it doesn't say crows. It says doves. I mean, can you imagine being threatened by a dove? Little lovely white dove. They seem kind of harmless. Christians are not to cause harm. They're not to create issues. They're not to create problems. That's going to happen on its own. But don't go looking for it. We're not to go out there running through the world, fighting back, crushing people, just walking over everybody, being rude and brash and, you know, um, these people need to hear the truth. No, we're supposed to be harmless. We're supposed to be gentle. It has the idea here of of kind of an innocence, of a purity. In Song of Solomon 5.2, the husband says to his wife, My dove, my undefiled. The dove is a, a symbol of purity. I mean, when's the last time you saw a wedding and they released a, you know, a dozen crows? I mean, you wouldn't see that. Why? Wow, well, they released doves. You know, why? Wow, it's pure. You know, it looks nice. They're harmless. So it's a twofold idea. On one hand, we don't fight back. On the other hand, we don't compromise the truth. Sometimes we don't have to say all that could be said in one setting. You know, when I I share the Lord with somebody, when I share the gospel with somebody, sometimes I'll give them enough information to get them to the point of being curious. And then, you know, they're kind of curious, and I just kind of let it go. Then the next time I run into that person... You know, and they come up and they initiate the conversation and they, you know, last time we were together, you know, you, were, you mentioned this. Did the Bible really say that? And you share a little bit more. See, somehow we think that we have to close the deal right there. Like somehow it's our doing that this person comes to Christ. That's not the case. We, we should beg, we should plead, we should do everything within our power to share the gospel with people. But don't think there's a time frame on it. God knows the appointed time when people will come to faith in Christ. Just like he knows the appointed time when you were born and the appointed time when you will die. There's no mistakes. There's not going to be somebody in hell and, and, and everybody in heaven's going, Oh, George, you know, if you just would have persisted a little more, you could have won that brother for the Lord. It's not going to work that way. So many times we want to think that because it, it creates kind of a, you know, a lot, it's something in our logic. That's not how it works. The Bible, my Bible says that before the foundation of the world, We were chosen in Him. So we're called to go and we share the message. If God's working in their heart, then hey, if if they want to come to Christ, then God's going to allow that to happen. But don't think we're to be out there stomping on people, 
you know, you, you have to repent right now because, you know, tomorrow you could die. That may be true. And there has to be some urgency to our message. But we never want to force that to the point where somebody's just going through a routine to get us off their back. We want to see God working in their heart. And so give them a little bit. Give them a little more if they're still hungry. If they're still hungry. But so many times, you know, we go out to lunch with a co-worker and the co-worker says, all they have to say is, so I noticed you go to church on Sundays, huh? And that's all that's needed. And all of a sudden we're throwing up all over them. I mean, we got them trapped in this restaurant for hours. We got the Bible out and we're beating them over the head and, you know, and they're just blown away. It's like, man, I just asked where you went to church. We have to be wise. We have to be harmless. 1 Corinthians 9, 2, Paul said, I am made of all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Be wise. Find a point of contact with somebody. Maybe they like sports. Well, maybe you don't. We'll talk to them about sports. Whatever it takes. In Luke 6, 27, Jesus basically summed it all up. He said, love your enemies. Do good to them who hate you. Because you're going to be persecuted. What should be our response? We're to be harmless. We're not to fight back. 1 Peter 2.23, when our Lord was reviled, it says that he did not revile in return. When he was cursed, he didn't curse back. When his enemies abused him on the cross, what did he do? He forgave their sin. I mean, that's the gentleness that our Lord displays. That should be the gentleness that we display. Thirdly, not only be wise, harmless, but beware. In other words, be alert, be on guard, be watchful. Get a, make sure you see the perspective where people are coming from. Men who are agents of the enemy, of the devil, and that's all men who aren't regenerated, by the way. He may be a nice guy, but you know what? If he's not saved, he's being you know, used by Satan somehow. They're after something. And so you have to be careful. People will want to trap you with your words. They want to bring you in a, in a, a situation that's possibly volatile just to see how you'd react as a Christian. Be cautious about that. Be wise. Be harmless. Beware. Paul was caught in such a situation in Acts 23, 1-5. There he stood before God with... You know, he said he stood there before God with a clear conscience. And when the high priest commanded them that they stood by him to smite him on the mouth, what did Paul do? Paul said, God shall smite thee, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Well, that was wrong. And he apologized for that. That wasn't right to call the high priest a name. Sometimes when we're out sharing our faith, you know, we get into a debate. We get into apologetical, you know, talking about whatever. You know, sometimes it's not good to go down that road. Sometimes it's good just to pull back and just to kind of reiterate the truth of the gospel and, hey, if that person wants to talk about global warming or whatever, well, that's nice. See if they're interested in the truth. See if they're interested in the the claims of Christ. Fourthly, be calm. Be calm. I know this is hard maybe for some of you when you're sharing your faith, but be calm. Sometimes we've been praying for that family friend. You know, all of our our Christian walk, maybe 15, 10, 15, 20 years, and finally comes an opportunity to share our faith with them. They ask a question, whatever, and we just get all keyed up and we just start to go nuts on them. You know, 
verse 19 says, when you do, when they deliver you up, do not be anxious how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you're going to talk about, what you're going to say. In other words, when they haul you into the councils, when they're persecuting you, put you in the context of Matthew 10 here, and you're hauled before the courts, and they threaten your life, don't be anxious about it. Don't sit there sweating bullets. Be calm about it. I mean, I mean, can you imagine being calm if they came in here and handcuffed me and took me away? I mean, I'd probably not be totally calm. I'd be wondering what's going on. But I'd pray that the Spirit of God would come upon me so that I wouldn't say something derogatory or something dishonoring to Christ as they're hauling me off to jail. Be calm. I mean, how do you become? First of all, don't worry about your defense. Don't worry about your defense. Don't worry about what you're going to say. If you didn't do anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? Jesus told his disciples not to worry because he would take care of them. He would give them what they needed to say when the time came. He said, just go about and you just do your ministering business. You do what I told you to do. Don't worry about what if this happens, what if that happens. You know, so many times I remember going through an evangelistic class Evangelism explosion, they called it. And they had basically virtually every scenario in this workbook that you would know, possibly. You know, you'd go out and share your faith. Well, now, if this, this person was an older person and they said this, well, then here's what you respond. Or if this person was a younger person and they said this, here's what you respond. Or if they tried to say, change the subject to this, here's how you steer it. And they gave you all these tools. And for the most part, it was a good program. But I mean... Most of the times when I went through that class, I found myself going out onto some of the college campuses in San Diego because we had to do that for school, out there thinking, okay, now, what if this guy says this? I'm thinking so much about what I'm supposed to say or not supposed to say, I forgot the gospel. So worried about the technique. And see, he's saying, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Sometimes we go out and we share our faith and we run into somebody and they say, well, you know what, that makes sense. I want to come to Christ. I want to make a commitment to Christ. And it's like we don't hear him. And so we keep on talking. And the person's like, no, nah, you know, I want, to, I want to get saved. Because we don't expect it to happen that way. Sometimes it does. Usually it doesn't, but sometimes it does. But don't worry about what you're going to say. God will take care of that. Besides that, worry is a sin. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Worrying is not going to do anything about anything. And he gave them a reason not to worry. He said, it shall be given you in the same hour what you're going to speak. I believe that if I have the living God through the Holy Spirit and Christ living in me, if I'm called before whatever, whoever, Congress, whatever it might be, I'm not going to worry. I mean, I pray that God would give me the, the wisdom to say what he wants me to say. By the way, that text is not an excuse for, you know, when you're asked to teach or you're asked to give your testimony or whatever. Well, I'm not going to prepare. I'm just going to go up there and wing it. No, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> totally different context here. We have to study. We have to apply the word of God to our heart. But when the time comes, don't worry about it because God will recall certain things to your mind, whatever he wants you to say. How many times has that happened to you? You know, you, you walk away from a, a witnessing situation. You're sharing Christ and you walk away going, man, where did that stuff come from? I don't know. I knew that stuff. That's pretty cool. Well, God brought it to your memory. Maybe you heard it somewhere. Maybe you read it in the Word. Whatever it is. But he always uses what we've learned in the Scripture. And so we have to remember that. 
We have to be calm. Don't don't worry about all these all these kind of a, these these crazy things. And it's interesting because when he says God will tell you what to say when the time comes to say it. For the apostles, that has a whole different meaning than it does for us. Because I really believe when Jesus said that, he literally was going to literally speak through them. Like when they sat down and they began to write their letters or their gospels or whatever, God was literally moving through them as they recorded what God wanted them to record. The verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Well, they didn't have Scripture, New Testament, back then. So when they literally spoke things, I believe it was God who was speaking through them. And we have the completed Word of God today, so for me to get up here and say, Thus saith the Lord, and I say something that's not found in Scripture, I don't believe that would be correct. But in their time and age, in that dispensational period, it was totally okay. So God really worked through them in that way. Because he says, the spirit of your father will speak through you. That word speak means to utter. In other words, you're just a conduit. You're just, you're just going to stand there and God's going to work through you. So be harmless, be wise, be harmless, beware, be calm. And also, be real. Look at verse 22. It says, you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake. But what's it say? He that endures to the end shall be saved. This verse is misunderstood by a lot of people. What's it saying here? What's it mean endures to the end? The end of what? Well, what's the context? What are we talking about here? We're talking about persecution, right? We're talking about being thrown in the midst of wolves. So it's saying that if you make it through the persecution, you get saved. It really means this, if you survive the persecution, you're the one being delivered. So it isn't saying that people who, 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 who can make it through persecution will hold on to their salvation. It's not saying that at all. It's saying endurance is the hallmark of genuine salvation. In other words, you don't have to... The reason you're going to endure to the end to be saved is because you are saved. God will help you through that. He will help you through your persecution. It's not like God's up there going, come on, man, you've got to make it. If you don't make it, you're not going to be saved. Beloved, either you're saved or you're not, right? I mean, we know that scripture teaches that. We're not saved in and of ourselves. We're saved by the grace of God. It's a work of God that he does in our hearts. So if he saves us in the first place, who are we to think that we can somehow get rid of that salvation? We're eternally secure in Christ. But the reason you'll know you're saved is because you will endure. That's what it's saying. Sometimes I think it's good for churches to go under persecution. You see that in other countries all the time. They go under persecution and you know what? What's it do? It purges all the chaff. It purges all the people that are coming for all the wrong reasons. When you get a church that's facing persecution, trust me, only those who are real in Christ are going to show up. Everybody else is going to be doing whatever they're going to be doing. So it's a hallmark of genuine salvation. That's the problem with our church in, this, in America in general. We're not persecuted as such. 
So our churches are full of phonies. Our churches are full of people who sit, a, sit in a seat or sit in a pew week after week, but they don't have a clue, literally. And one day they're going to be standing before Jesus Christ going, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? And he's going to have to turn to them and say, you know what? I never knew you. Not that I knew you and you blew it. Not that I knew you, you were saved once and then you walked away or you saved in your sins and now you're no longer saved. No, he says, I never knew you. Never with God is a long time because God transcends time, okay? So the idea of, of being real is, has the idea of, of being enduring. It has the idea of being patient with God, what God has you going through. People aren't saved by their continuous good deeds, but they do prove the validity of their salvation by continuing to do good deeds. We're not saved by our good works, but our good works are evidence that we're saved. I mean, God needs to purify our own hearts and our own churches. In Romans 2, 7, it says, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Hebrews 3, 14, it says, We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. In other words, you can tell one who is truly committed to Christ because he is true to the end. He's real. There's no phoniness about it. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Apostle John, who said, it was those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. So continuance is the the proof of being a real Christian. Jesus said, be real, be genuine. Be a true Christian. Because if you do, you're going to endure to the end. You're going to be delivered through whatever may come. Be patient. Be patient through that whole process. God will will, will take us through there. Last thing, be gone. Verse 23 says, When they persecute in this city, flee to another. And you say, well, is that right? And then he says, For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone through all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. It goes back to, to having a little wisdom and even what we talked about last week. When you've shared the gospel with somebody and they just continually reject it, you know what? There comes a point in time where you just back off. You just back off. And you let God take that truth and you work, let God work at it. Because just continuing to revisit it with that person over and over and over and over becomes an irritant to them. And then pretty soon, as soon as they see you coming, man, they're going the other direction. Why? Because they don't want to be preached at again. They've heard it. That doesn't mean we're not receptive. If they come and ask questions, Spirit, hey, you give them the answer. But back in in Jesus' time, here he was saying, you know what? If you come under persecution, you know, don't just stay there until they kill you. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, you know what? If they're not receiving you, pick it up. There's probably another town where they will receive you. So it comes back to being wise, being harmless, being all those things. I mean, if for some reason, I mean, we stirred up a hornet's nest in this city and it just became impossible to do church in this city, well, you know what? You don't just 
don't do church, you'd move and do it somewhere else where they'd be receptive. That's what Paul did. He would come in, he would preach. What would happen? A riot would start? Read about it. It's right in the New Testament. What'd he do? He'd leave that town and he'd go to another. When a riot broke out there, he went to the next town. He just kept on going, just kept on moving. You know, a moving target's a little harder to hit than one who's just stationary. And that's the problem with Christians. So many times, we're not doing nothing for Christ. We're just sitting there. Keep moving. Ask God what He wants you to do. I mean, that's the way it's going to be even to the end. In verse 23, he's jumping all the way to the last missionaries who will be moving from one place to another when the Son of Man returns. You know, during the Great Tribulation, he says, keep moving, because they're going to come after you. Those dogs are going to be right on your heels. You've got to keep moving. Christ's faithful people during the Tribulation, the Jewish people, 144,000 of them, will preach all over the land. And it says that they'll keep moving until the Lord comes. Well, what's he saying to us here? We don't have any right to provoke animosity or destruction. There's too much work that needs to be done in the name of Christ. So we need to go to receptive hearts, receptive people. And when you are persecuted, just remember what Zechariah 2.8 says. It says, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. I mean, if you think it's tough on the sheep from God's end, it's going to be a lot tougher on the wolves for what they do to the sheep. Because God watches out for us, beloved. He's not a shepherd who's disconnected. He's totally connected with us. And he sees and he knows exactly what we go through on a daily basis. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that we would have the boldness of these 12 who are being sent out to a lost and dying world, to a vicious world. Lord, that we would be given the grace that's needed through Christ to reach out to them. And Lord, when we are persecuted for our faith, when we are persecuted for the message of Christ, Lord, I pray that we would remember what you said. That we're not to retaliate. We're not to be mean-spirited, not to be judgmental. We're to be gentle, we're to be harmless, we're to be wise. We're to beware of situations that could dishonor Christ. Father, we thank you that you are there with us, that you will, truly, through what we've experienced in your word, bring to recall the words that you would desire us to say in those times. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I ask, Lord, that you would do a a mighty work in their heart. Father, that you would, through your Spirit, draw them to yourself, that you would show them their need of a Savior. And, Lord, we thank you that that's only possible through your grace. And uh, we, we pray that you would touch their hearts this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.